Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. <clears throat> Today is uh, March 15th, 2017. It is a Wednesday, and that means what? That means that it's time for an interview. I have uh, a call a new friend on uh, today. His name is Vin Armani, and I was on his podcast, I think his eighth episode of his podcast. He's now up to 20. He's doing a weekly podcast that's also video and audio combined. Uh, so they do audio feeds and video feeds, and he puts out a show live streaming on YouTube. They go out on Facebook. He's linked up with a Uh, an outlet called Activist Post as well that helps syndicate his content, get it out there. But 20 episodes is new into a podcast. Um, I actually would have had him on earlier. There was a little bit of a scheduling snafu on our end, and uh, so it got delayed. I wanted to have him on right away when our schedule was pretty empty at the beginning of the year to kind of help him get his show off the ground. I don't do a lot of that, but in this case, I'm trying to, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Vin is... Uh, anarchist slash voluntarist, and we're going to be talking about that today. And he's coming at current events from a very detail-oriented perspective of what's going on and deconstructing the news. You might imagine that's something that I, uh, I, I like an awful lot. He's doing it far more in-depth than I do because I kind of look at my job as you're probably a little woken up when you, when you get here. And I want to wake you up even more, but then I want to start cramming you with things to do rather than continuously do that part of the job, right? I want to talk about how we can build resiliency in our lives and design our lifestyles and things like that. But there's an incredible need for people to be deconstructing the bullshit that's put out every day. So this show's kind of in two segments. He does the first hour is that kind of, let's talk about what's going on in the news and here's why it's bullshit. And then he'll bring on a guest for the second hour of his show. It works really well. And I remember when I was new and trying to get the word out there. Uh, so I, I kind of want to help him because he's doing such a fantastic job of it. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff today. How he started out politically on the left. Uh, how he came to anarchism and uh, voluntarism. We're going to talk about what we call practical agorism. Uh, we're talking about being an entrepreneur. How that shapes your political views. And a lot of other cool stuff. We'll have on Vin in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Bob Wells Nursery has become my go-to for fruit trees, nut trees, and hard-to-find edibles. Their customer service is second to none, and they even provide a 10% discount for all MSB members. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is the Canovo Group. The Canovo Group is a Utah-based real estate team with over a decade of experience in the business. Check them out in the TSP Business Directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1967, because the episode's 1967. We have two on deck from Alex Shrug today. We have The Sound of Thunder, a six-day war, and we have Protesting the War, the Environment, and Everything. 
Uh, we also have some notable births. Anna Nicole Smith, who was 26 when she married an 89-year-old millionaire who died at 90. Anderson Cooper, uh, CNN newsreader. I guess you call it news. Adam Savage, co-host of Mythbusters, born this year in comedy. Will Ferrell and Jimmy Kimmel, born this year. Music, Faith Hill. Tim McGraw. Kurt Cobain, who died in 94 at age 27 of suicide by shotgun. Let me tell you something. When you commit suicide by shotgun, you mean it. You're not, you're not kidding. You're not eating six of the 80 pills in a bottle and saying you tried to kill yourself. He wanted to go. In movies, Julia Roberts, Carrie Ann Moss, who was Trinity in The Matrix, and Harry Connick Jr. from Independence Day. This year in film, we have The Graduate. We have Disney's Jungle Book, which was the last film produced by Walt Disney before his death last year. And Guess Who's Coming to Dinner portrays interracial, interracial marriage as reasonable, or at least imaginable, according to Alex Shrugged. In comedy this year in TV, we have The Carol Burnett Show, The Smothers Brothers, and The Flying Nun. In game shows, The Newlywed Game comes into prime time. And in detective shows... Ironsides and Mannix are released this year. This year in music, I'm a Believer from the Monkees, a made-for-TV band. Come on, baby, light my fire by the doors. One of the greatest pieces of music in all time, as far as I'm concerned, personally. And the Beatles uh, have All You Need Is Love and Strawberry Fields Forever. In other news, no nukes in space. The Outer Space Tra Treaty prohibits nukes, but allows kinetic strikes. Uh, dropping a big freaking rock from space. <laughs> The Apollo 1 fire kills three astronauts. The capsule will undergo redesign with safety in mind. You might want to do that the first time around. And the Soyuz 1 crashes on re-entry. The cosmonauts' last words were in reference to the poor workmanship of the spacecraft and where the builders might shove it. John McCain shot down over Hanoi this year. He seriously injured and taken prisoner by the North Vietnamese. Really hard for me to pick between the two uh, history segments from Alex, but I'm going to go with protesting the war, the environment, and everything. Fits with our song of the day at the end. And it really captures the, the mood of the nation at this point. And I think it'll actually meld in well with the topic of the show today, which is why I wanted to pick it. After acceptance of the nuclear test ban treaty, the protesters against nukes need a new direction, so they have turned toward the environmental causes. The apocalyptic books Silent Spring, unburdened by footnotes, and Famine 1975, America's Decision, Who Will Survive, warned of the destruction of the food chain that will lead to nuclear war. Paul Eric publishes The Population Bomb next year. His hockey stick graphs prove, in quotes, that our population growth is out of control. In some way, we're all going to die. President uh, Johnson has radically stepped up deployments to Vietnam, which requires an increasing number of draftees. Protesters are burning their draft cards and marching in the streets by the hundreds of thousands. Muhammad Ali is arrested for refusing the draft. His conviction will be overturned. The musical hair captures the mood of this year, naked but not afraid. Uh, cert certain, certainly resigned to one's fate, and if one is going to die anyway, grabbing whatever pleasure or oblivion one can find, tune in, tune in, Turn on and drop out. Peace, love, and dope. My take by Alex Shrug. Famine 1975 scared the snot out of me. I became radicalized. I fought for the environment, celebrated the first Earth Day, and called for a two-child limit on births, and attended what we would call today town hall meetings to confront politicians. The California peripheral canal would kill off that little fish. I was a perfect little radical, and I failed utterly. Nothing changed. As I languished in a daze of depression and boozy resignation, the news declared that the United States had reached zero population growth. I was shocked. We had done nothing. I reviewed what I thought was true and realized that it was all a load of hooey. I still have both books, Famine 1975, still sits on my desk. It reminds me how easily we can be misled with a few charts and so-called expert opinion. 
We won't make that mistake again. No, we will make other mistakes as our political masters drive us from hither to yon. I think it's really hard to understand the mood of the country. Let me explain to you some of the, the different demographics that get left out of this discussion. At this point in 1967, the soldiers that fought World War II were about 22 years out from VE and VJ days. They had gone and they had done their duty, and now their sons were being asked to go do their duty, and many of them thought, go do your duty. I did, you did, you know, we, they, they understood that death happens in combat, but they didn't understand the difference in the war because they just believed in their country. We call this blind patriotism. If the, if, if the president and the Congress say that we need to go do this, then we need to go do this. But there was no, there was no clear victory. So the sons that were being asked to go die, many of them were like the born of 4th of July types that believed everything their parents said. But some of them started to ask themselves questions like, what are we doing this for? And by now the war had been going on for a while. A lot of body bags had been coming back, and there was no real clear direction. And you know these people had dreams in their lives, and why should my dreams be disrupted to go fight this war? Is the war worth fighting if you have to force people to fight it? Very legitimate question. In the middle of this, We had veterans from the Korean conflict who wondered what the hell was going on because no one even seemed to care. They were the men of the Forgotten War. They're why still today people walk just past the Korean War Memorial and don't go look at it at the lawn in Washington, D.C. when they're on their way to the giant black wall of the Vietnam Memorial. As I've been interested how many times I've asked somebody, have you seen the Vietnam Wall? I have a photo of it with a gentleman leaning against it and the reflections of his comrades looking back at him on the wall of my office to remind me of sacrifice. And many people, and almost anybody that's been to D.C. says, yes, I have. And it, it's a moving thing. And then I say, well, have you seen the Korean War Memorial? And they say, no. Nine out of ten that have seen the Vietnam Wall have say, no, they have not seen the, the Korean War Memorial. And I ask them if they know it's a short walk between the two, and most of them don't know that. Well, those men were wondering what, 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 was, what was going on here. They, they saw uh, that maybe even things would be worse for those being sent to Vietnam. And those were the, the guys that you know, maybe didn't quite have kids yet. And then there were all of these military men, these, these colonels and, and, and majors and captains that had heard all the glory of World War II, and they wanted their crack at it. Their crack at glory, their crack to be the MacArthur or the or the Patton or the Eisenhower, and we sat a divided people, a divided people over many things, including we're all going to die. Not just those of us going to Vietnam, but we're all going to die because there's going to be too many people because we're not going to be able to feed everybody, and nothing happened. Does it sound like today? We're all going to die. I talk to young people all the time that believe that they will not live to be old men and old women because of global warming, because of some carefully constructed graphs. And here we fight each other while those in power continue to control us. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And our men still continue to die. Our men still continue to be asked to kill people and then come home and are discarded like a, 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 a used handkerchief by the government that sent them over. And then they have to deal with and process these things. Yeah. We haven't learned from history, except 
The politicians have gotten better at what they do. The people in power have gotten better at what they do. The oligarchs have gotten better at what they do. That means that we need to get better at what we do. And that's what we'll be talking to our guest about today in just a moment. Hey, folks, I just want to say, any of you that are or ever have been an MSB or Member Support Brigade member of the Survival Podcast, I really appreciate you. Without you, I could not bring this show to you Monday through Friday, five days a week. You are the primary means by which we're able to deliver this programming and to live the lives that allow us to teach the things we do here at the Survival Podcast. But, of course, you know me. I'm not about charity. This is not some kind of membership like on uh, public broadcasting where we send you a $4 tote bag in return for a $100 uh, donation and call it a donation. This is a value-for-value exchange. You'll get discounts to over 60 companies. You'll get a lot of other great content that's available nowhere else. And you'll get every episode of the Survival Podcast that's ever been produced in convenient zip files. You can download them all. You can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Scroll to the bottom to see our different methods of payment, and we'd love to have you supporting our show. It comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode. So, guys, yeah, I went a little long with the history segment today because I do think it fits very much what Vin and I are about to discuss, the, the way that government views its citizens as pawns. But they also view us as pawns that are dangerous. People think of the pawn on the chessboard as being the weakest, uh, weakest piece. But the pawn actually is extremely powerful if it gets the right angle on something that is technically more powerful than it. The pawn can take out a knight. The pawn can take out another pawn. The pawn can take out any piece on the chessboard if it gets the right angle. And they see the pawn is the, there's more pawns than any other pieces, but there's not that many of them. But think of the chessboard when, where there's a thousand pawns and about the same number of all the other pieces. That's society. So the pawns have to be disarmed. The pawns have to not know their own power and the pawns have to be controlled. The systems of control have gotten more and more sophisticated. I talk about this all the time. I look forward to digging deeper into it and what we can do about it individually with our guest now, Vin Armani. And with that, hey, Vin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, how's it going? It's going good, man. Hey, I, I actually wanted to have you on earlier in the year. We had a little bit of a scheduling snafu on our end. So uh, you had me on your show early on. I wanted to get you on here, get you some exposure. Um, love what you're doing, the message of liberty. and the. De- I was talking in my intro about the way you're deconstructing current events, but... Can we go back a little bit from now? Because you're very much the voluntarist type now, the agorist, uh, the anarchist, but that's not how you started politically. Where did you come from on the political spectrum? Well, I mean, I, although I have been those things for quite a while, the things that you mentioned, an, an anarchist, a voluntarist, an agorist for a considerable amount of time, but I would say... It's been in certainly in the last 10 years that that's that that's been my political stand. Honestly, I was raised in a very, I guess what we would call now sort of social justice warrior household, although that's a that's a new term. It certainly wasn't there. But uh, my family definitely comes from the left, sort of the activist side. Uh, I have members of my family who are a, pretty much avowed Marxists. Um, and that's and that's how I. That's how I was raised. I mean, I really believe that that it was all uh, and and I am, I think, a naturally compassionate person. Uh, and I was raised to really think about the feelings of others and to try to take care of others. And I think that that's that informs me now. 
Uh, it's just that I don't believe that the best way to take care of the maximum number of people in the most peaceful way is through the government. And But I do still definitely want to see the maximum amount of people around me with the maximum level of abundance and the maximum amount of happiness and freedom. I just don't think that the way to do it is the, the way that I guess I was I was raised sort of in the, the social justice appeal to the state way. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a peaceful um, a peaceful system that is, is run by the force of a gun. Exactly. And it's amazing to me that because because I, I think what you have when you look at the left right paradigm is both sides when I'm talking I'm talking about politicians I'm talking about people sure. both sides have extreme ethics and they express those ethics differently and then the people in power use that that appeal to ethics to sell you on the fact that well the only way that can happen is if we make it happen and and the other side they're the bad guys when they really don't give a damn what side you pick as long as you pick a side. That's right. I mean, I was saying just the other day that, you know, it, every member of Congress and every senator gets paid the same amount regardless of how they vote. So their, what their motivation is, is the same as, as my motivation and your motivation at, at its core. I mean, I think that you and I probably, you know, have some, some loftier goals, but I mean, look, these guys, they're, it's their job to get reelected and to have, you know, to have their, their check cut to them every month as a senator and to have their expenses paid and to have their staff's expenses paid. And, you know, I, I think every single one of us, especially as entrepreneurs, knows that, look, when you've got a staff around you, you're responsible to them. And the very first, your very first thing is let's keep the money rolling in. So regardless of what their goals may have been before they became politicians or what they thought that they might be um, – before they joined the the armed gang of the state, what they eventually become is, you know, it's a it's a fait accompli. Like what they eventually become is somebody who needs to keep the the lights on and who needs to keep the mortgage paid, and they do that by uh, by continuing violence against the citizenry. And they've been convinced it's necessary. And I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with something called the party due system. No, no, you, what is this? Once you understand that, then then it just doesn't matter who you put it. So the party due system, there's a, a website you should tell your folks about on your show. It's called sure. Defining the Machine. Guy put it together several years ago. It's a small site, but it, the, the information it gives us is, is critical. At least in the House, this is how this works. So you show up. You decide Dinner Armani's going to run for the House of Representatives, right? Mm -hmm. And you run and you win for your district. And you show up and you're full of good intentions and you're going to do all these wonderful things you promised and all. Mm -hmm. And when you walk in, the first thing that they do is they hand you a binder and they send you over to basically a telemarketing room. And they say, well, what you're going to do is you're going to pay off your, your debt. Right. Pay you owe $250,000. That's your share of what we spent to help get you elected. And you say, mm -hmm. I ran an independent campaign. They say, oh, no, we pr promoted the Democrat, Republican, whatever agenda, and that helped you win. And you, until you pay this off, um, you, you, you can't really do anything. And you say, well, what do you mean I can't do anything? Well, you can't be on a head of a committee. You can't be on a committee. You can't sponsor a bill. You can't co-sponsor a bill. You can't do anything except just show up and vote until you pay your dues off. Mm -hmm. And then they say, oh, do you want to be a chair of a committee? Well, yes, I'd like to be. Well, here's a price list. And this is all legal, by the way. They give you a price list. And until you get enough money in there to become that whatever you want, or you want to sponsor a bill, well, this is how much that costs. And right. you have to pay your dues out of donor money, or you can pay it out of your pocket if you're wealthy. But you have to pay into the DNC or RNC to help win re-elections with this due system. So you can come up completely clean, white, 
as the driven snow, you know, with with intentions. And by the time you're actually able to do anything, you you are now on the hook to all these people that you were forced to raise money from. That makes a lot of sense to me, man. I mean, it's, I think any time that you have an established and powerful organization, I mean, I don't think that the idea that that happens should be surprising to anybody who's been involved in anything that was, I mean, whether it's a, whether it's a sports league, whether it's, you know, just, it doesn't even have to be political, whether it's just anything social, there is always that idea of like, hey, rookie. You know, it's time to it's time to pay your dues, and and it's in the you're right, it's in the paying your dues that you become the corrupt individual, because that's when the corrupting influence of that existing corrupt culture is able to seep into your bones. It makes a lot of sense to me. Well, yeah, and I was listening to your your first hour of your latest episode, and you were talking about mm-hmm. this type of thing. I was thinking, I wonder if he knows he's talking about Pornell's Iron Law of Bureaucracy. Right? There you go, man. So when like there's an organization. In the beginning, there will be people committed to the mission and people committed to the organization itself. Right. And the people that are committed to the organization are always the ones that rise. And, right. and that, that means that over time, the bureaucracy takes over and all the people that were committed to the mission end up sidelined. Well, this is the danger of collectivism, right, is that when you – You know, I, I think it's it's something that's forgotten, certainly at this point. You know, the Declaration of Independence, you know, when it says governments are instituted among men to protect individual rights, that's a very important thing. Governments are not instituted in order to uh, maintain the government itself, right? And that's the point that we've reached, as you say. That's the point where you know, okay, it's a bureaucracy. It's out of control. And at that point, it's dangerous because there is no purpose other than just for the state to survive. Which it must keep doing things. It must continue to propagate. Right. It's like a friggin' disease at that point. Right. I mean, what brought you to anarchism, voluntarism, that type of thing? Is, is it like just that kind of a realization or was it something else? Was it a major life event or were you a person? I mean, I'm the person that like one day I realized like, dude, you've always been an anarchist. You just didn't know it. Yeah, yeah, I think that probably describes me as well. I've always questioned, you know, I haven't been anti-authoritarian necessarily. I've certainly had some points in my life where I've deferred to authority because I truly and genuinely felt like, okay, this person is an authority because of the experience that they've had, the wisdom that they've had, what they've learned and what they have to impart. But I've always been skeptical of authority that came from Uh, a, a job title or something that where, I, where I'm like, man, I'm looking and you really are not moral. You don't, you know, so this is something that I've had. Um, and certainly when I saw internal contradictions. So this is something that I've had in my sort of consciousness since I was very, very, very young. And it caused me a lot of problems in school because I was questioning teachers and administrators, as you could probably imagine. But um, when I went off to university, I actually went to uh, to school at Howard University in DC. I've started studying political science, but it was I think in that being in DC, studying political science, being like in the heart of it. Um, eventually, I moved over to philosophy because because I started seeing all of these uh, internal contradictions. And as I studied and learned more, just from standpoint of how to logically form an argument, slowly but surely the scales fell from my eyes. Uh, and then I went on to have a, a long career in software development, and I had been a hacker before that, so I had an anarchist bent. But I think being inside of that culture where your entire – basically you spend your entire day and your entire career 
finding the flaws and fixing the flaws in other people's thinking, right? That's basically what a, so- a software development career is, is you go in and you fix bugs. And all a bug is is a flaw in the way that somebody else or that yourself, that, that you thought. And it, you get into a mode where you just start taking apart everything. And the people that you're around, you just start taking apart everything. And so, you know, most people in software development are, are relatively anarchic. And, uh, you, you know, I, I grew into the, into that and I was able, I've been able now to form a life for myself that where I'm living very much outside of the state. And, you know, it's only recently that I've kind of been able to come out of the closet. I was on a TV show for many years and my political views, uh, are not necessarily those of Hollywood, I <laughs> yeah, would say. Yeah. So, uh, so that was really, um, a, a major conflict for me of, putting principle over profit. But, you know, I reached a point where I was like, look, I've got to, I, I at least now have to, I have to do something because otherwise this is going to eat at me. I'm not going to be able to go to sleep. Yeah, it's interesting most of you talk. I come from a the same but different, man, in the words of Tommy Chong. Like, mm-hmm. so my family, I don't know if you would say that they were activists, like social justice types, but they were all very left. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm John called Jack because Kennedy. Right. I mean, that that wow. that level of, you know, complete devotion on both sides of the grandparents. Everybody was dyed in the wool Democrat. And I mean, I was a kid that like in, you know, like grade school where you vote. I voted for Reagan as a kid, you know, in like second grade. <laughs> right. Uh, so, I mean, I always just because I the, the concept of taking other people's stuff never, you know, never sit right with me. But, you know, it's like I grew up, I, and, and I'm talking now as a young man, like, in, you know, right after I got out of the military and stuff like that, I started to ask things like, well, do I really think we should lock somebody up because they smoked a plant? Right. Well, no. Well, that's kind of completely in, in contradiction with the, the standard meme of the Republican Party, um, especially at that time. We're talking 25 years ago now. Right. And uh, over time, I realized, well, maybe I'm a libertarian. I actually ran for libertarian. Uh, Congress is a libertarian in the state of Texas for the Texas State House. And uh, it, I was told the old joke, you know, the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist is six months. <laughs> it took it. me about six years because, and it was because of like what I call purest bullshit. You know, like the, the you know what I'm talking about in the anarcho community, like this, this, and it's like you, you, and then once you kind of cross that bridge, you think yourself, you people think you're helping, but you're not. You're berating right. the people that are five degrees away from you, and you're preventing them from making the connection because the question in their head is how would we? And instead of answering the question of how would we, you tell them they're a bootlicker and a statist. Right. That's well, and I think a lot of the times it's because those people don't actually know the answer. And yeah. and for me, that has been, I, I mean, my my background and I think my mindsets kind of as an as an engineer. I've been an audio engineer. I've been a software engineer. So as an engineer, like I I am fascinated by trying to figure out solutions to problems. Like a problem just sitting there does not work for me. Right. Like that bothers me. And if somebody says. Okay, here's your idea. How are you going to do it? If I don't have the answer, that it is the correct move for me. If I truly believe that that you know I have a good idea, the the correct move for me is to actually try to answer their question. They're doing me a favor. They're showing an inconsistency and a bug in my thinking. And for me to berate them for that is like, dude, that that person. If if you can actually answer that question, you've that person, you've got them. Yeah, because if they're asking the question, that means that they're waiting for you to give the answer. Like you're missing your chance to to flip that person to to your ideal. So 
start looking for answers. That's what I really find missing. You're right in this the sort of I don't I wouldn't even call them them purists because that's not really what they they are. They're they're more they're noodlers really. Yeah. Like they 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 don't want to. They like the idea. They know the idea is right. And the thing is that the idea, you know, don't don't hurt people and don't take people's stuff. Like, how do you how do you lose when that's the place you're coming from, right? But there's so much. It's like, okay, embody that idea, and now let's move forward. How are you actually living your life? Yeah. Which is which is what turned me on so much to the idea of agorism. You know what I mean? Is that it's. It is a call to action to say, okay, you believe these things, now start acting like you believe them. Let's, that's, a, that's a great word to talk about. First, before we go there, though, I, I want to uh, kind of point something out. I, a lot of people use the terms voluntarism and anarchism as though they're different things. And I guess, you know, if you want to be technical, you can try to find some differences, and there are people that will, and we get mad about what I'm about to say. But, but I find the, the, that at the core, they're the same thing, because it comes yes. down to, All relationships should be consensual and voluntary, and no one should use force or coercion to take other people's stuff. And I don't know about you, but I've started to play around with when I'm having conversations with people that don't know me as the host of a podcast, and I want to spread the idea of anarchism. I stop using the word. And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. People that will just put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 will agree with everything you say about voluntarism. And we've had listeners kind of play some games and, and have conversations. One guy had the exact same conversation two nights in a row with the same people, and they had totally different reactions because of the changing of the word. Yeah, it's words are very powerful. I mean, if you go back to when, you know, as we use voluntary voluntarism or voluntarism, the – I mean that's an old, that's an old word in in sort of uh, British and American the British and American philosophical lexicon but in terms of the way that we use it now it really came about in the 70s when the libertarian party decided that that they were going to form and it was the breakaway people which is also at the the point when agorism came in and really the the reasons for them is exactly what you described that and they they talk about it the the voluntarist was a magazine Formed by the people who were anarchist, who were anarchist libertarians, and they were looking for a word. Um, and and the, but the whole thing was they were like, we can't use anarchist because it has these connotations to it, like it's been stolen from us. And the same thing with with agorism or agorism. Either way, it comes from the term agora, which is an open marketplace. Really, what it means is free market. To be an agorist or an agorist is to be a free marketeer, but. Free market, as we know, that term has is has been so mangled and abused by both the left and the right that it's got too much baggage. You you can't use it anymore. So mm. that's that's the reason why you know from a philosophical standpoint, I, I much prefer agorist to free marketeer and voluntarist to anarchist. Although. I, when I re when I want to be provocative, I definitely still do call myself an anarchist. Yeah, I got you. I got you. You know, let's talk a little bit about agorism because. As a movement, it goes further than that. So you could say you're for free markets, or you can say you're, right. you're you're for agorism. But the person that says they're an agorist, let's talk to the audience a little bit about this because it's something I haven't really gone deep into. That means you're actually doing something outside yes. the system. Can you maybe give some examples of how people are practicing agorism rather than just theorizing or believing in agorism? Sure, sure, sure. So uh, this term was coined by a guy named Sam, Samuel Edward Konkin III. He he wrote two books about it. They're they're short books, and they are 
incredibly powerful. So I would suggest to anybody who's interested by these terms, uh, uh, interested in these terms by the end of our conversation, go and pick them up. One's called the New Libertarian Manifesto. Uh, one is called an Agorist Primer or Agorist Primer. I both both uh, he used both pronunciations. So I, I prefer uh, Agorist because it sounds more like anarchist. But obviously <laughs> Agorist is Agorist is closer to uh, to the Agora, which is what it's based on. But his definition in uh, an Agorist Primer is he said uh, Agorism is Thought and action consistent with freedom. And by freedom, he meant um, no violent coercion by anybody, whether that's by the state or whether that's by an individual. So what it what his basic idea is, is if we want to move to a society that has no violent coercion, we have to stop participating in violent coercion. That means stopping participating in the state. And he says that there are, from a an entre- entrepreneurial standpoint, this is really this is really entrepreneur as he's he's a student of uh, of Austrian economics. Uh, he he knew Rothbard. Rothbard read his work and and as a matter of fact wrote some commentaries on it. Murray Rothbard. He he's using entrepreneur as activist in a way. And he says, look, the state is really buttressed. The entire purse of the state has always come from the entrepreneur. Fundamentally, it's the entrepreneur that creates value. You've got the capitalist on one side who who owns the means of production. You've got the laborer on the other side who provides the, the labor human resources. And it's the entrepreneur in between who sort of makes the decisions and, and moves that capital. And so all the wealth that's ever been created has always been created by entrepreneurs. So he says there is a, a market out there that he calls counter the counter-economic market, the black and gray market, things that are either illegal, that the state makes illegal, or people doing business outside of the bounds of the state regulatory. This could be cash-only business, whatever. And he says that those businesses already exist. And what basically agorism is, is it is taking the philosophy of liberta- libertarianism, and because you have that philosophy be acting in the counter economy. So that means if you're going to start a business, you start it as a gray market business. I'm not a big fan of the of going the black market route just yeah. because I think that it's in a lot of ways it's counterproductive and you wind up in a in a situation where you have to use violence. Um there's it it just seems to go that way. Uh, but, you know, the, I think that there are some there are some exceptions to that. Yeah. Um, and and as things, I think that that's the 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 point, you know, especially with the, with drugs, like as marijuana, for instance, making marijuana quote unquote legal, which is taxed and regulated, and then then you aren't running a black market business if you're trading marijuana outside of that taxation and regulation. You're running a gray market business because governments usually shut down. Governments usually yes. shut down the gray market guy and throw the black market guy in prison. That's right. That's another big thing, man. <laughs> yes. It's the difference between criminal and civil. And it's also what you're, you're looking for the hearts and minds of other people, right? So w- gray market businesses, most people don't really mind that. Like if you go to a cash only business, you know what's going on. Sure. Like you know why this business is cash only. But how many people are really like, oh, you're not paying your taxes. I'm going to leave, you know? But if you go into a business and there's, you know, a, crystal meth on the counter that <laughs> might be a whole different situation yeah. you get what i'm saying there's yeah. a, so there's a there's a moral 
there's a moral aspect to it as well. And and so, I mean, that's basically the crux of it is that he says, look, the way to move to a stateless society is let's just behave as though the state doesn't exist. Let's not play their game. Let's not give them money. If they need to, if let's make them have to come and shut us down. Because if there's enough of us doing that, and if there's a critical mass, we just get too big. We're, we're both taking their resources and we're making them spend additional resources. And there's going to come a point, there's a tipping point where they just can't do it anymore, where they can't compete with us. And so then the gray market becomes the market. And that's the agora. That's very cool. And what it makes me think of is a permaculture principle uh, that I've learned from my mentor, Jeff Lawton. And what he's always said when you're designing anything, but specifically he's talking about designing landscapes and food production systems, the more restrictions upon the design, if the designer is good, the more elegant the design. And the mm -hmm. state has all of these restrictions that we see as impediments. But when you start learning to manage and use and, and be creative with the restrictions, they can become advantageous. So, for instance, New York City is like the most regulated thing on the planet, really, when it comes to business. It's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely. What you have to do to sell a hot dog out of a cart is just akin to selling a kidney in, in Mexico. Uh, <laughs> it might be easier to sell your kidney in Mexico, honestly, than get a hot dog <laughs> cart. Right? So they, they're, 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 this, this movement started where chefs were basically – making meals for people outside of the restaurant industry. And of course, the restaurant industry is pissed because they, right. they conform and they use this as their guild to keep people out. And they, you know, they're doing it without a license, whatever, shut them down. So what, what started happening is the chef went to somebody's house right. and made them a meal and then started right. charging a real premium for it. Well, you can't really shut that down. That's right. You can try, but it's very, very difficult. And they would even do things like the chef would provide them a, 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 a bill of material, so to speak, and they would go out. So the, they wouldn't even the guy wasn't even selling the food. He was coming to their house and just using their food and cooking a meal for them, and they happened to give him some money. Right. Now that that gets really hard to shut down, and then then it became a thing. Then it became trendy to have you know some great chef come to your house and cook, right. and then it became its own market, and that's the kind of gray market area you know. And it also can be very simple when when a neighbor that has a, a, a fig tree full of figs hands a, a basket of figs over the fence, and the guy hands him back a box a, a bucket of pecans. It's a gray market. That's gray market, that's a gorgeous. Right. And technically, both of you are supposed to pay taxes on it. Right. And, and nobody's right. going to pay taxes on their, their, their bucket of walnuts or, or pecans unless you're just a complete drone to the state. Well, I mean, one thing that I will say, I mean, these are these are things that we all that's that I think that's what's so powerful about the whole agorism thing is that it's so self-evident when you start to look and you're like, oh, yeah, these are these things are, are already happening. The state's not involved and they happen just fine. They happen peacefully. But. I think, you know, one of the reasons why this particular philosophy is coming to the forefront now, I mean, he wrote these books, the, the New Libertarian Manifesto he wrote in 1980. He, uh, he wrote an agorist primer in 1986, but uh, the agorist primer wasn't actually even published in paperback until 2008. And I think one of the reasons why is the technology had to catch up to make this something that could be viable on a bigger level. And I mean, you're talking about, you know, the private chefs, we're talking about handing the, 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 the exchange of apricots and walnuts over the wall. You know, you add technology to that. And what you get is you get an Uber yeah. or you get an Airbnb. Right. And, and, you know, we, you talk about New York city, 
when Uber launched in New York City, there was a ton of bad. I mean, there was they they actually when people they are going to be in, raped and shot and murdered because the state hasn't you know certified this guy or whatever. Well, and yeah. and if you if you follow the money, a taxicab medallion in New York at the time that you couldn't get new ones, so they only went at auction when someone would sell them. The auctions like up to about four years ago, nine hundred thousand oh dollars. For one taxicab medallion for to drive one car, nine hundred thousand dollars. Now you think, okay, that's so high that the incentive for an Uber driver to risk, and this is something that Konkin talks about, is that the agorist builds risk into his business model. So you look at it and you say, okay, is it worth the risk that I might be fined? What is it? A thousand dollars? Two thousand dollars? Because I get caught. Is it how long can I go? How much money can I make before I get caught? And then you weigh that against trying to save nine hundred thousand dollars or get a loan for nine hundred thousand dollars. And how long is it going to take to pay it back? So the thing is, the market does this on its own. And that's why you're seeing, you know, cities like when when Uber tried to launch in Las Vegas, it was crazy. Las Vegas has a heavy – the taxicab authority is incredibly strong here as people could imagine. There are thousands of cabs on the road and it's huge, huge business. Um, and they – it's the last vestiges of organized crime as well. The mob still owns a lot of those, the old mob. And that's their last stronghold in Vegas. When Uber launched, the taxicab authority had – and I didn't even know that they had this capability. They were driving around following the Uber cars on the map in unmarked SUVs. With guys with assault rifles and masks, balaclavas like special forces oh, over geez. their face, they were – the first day that Uber launched, they went and they were stopping these cars with assault rifles in the middle of the street in Las Vegas, throwing guys – throwing the driver and the passenger in masks. This is the taxi cab authority, throwing them up against the car, impounding the car and sending these people off. Now, Uber paid to get the cars out and all of that, and Uber yeah. eventually won. But I think that this is this is an example that right now I can, I can call an Uber in Las Vegas. Uber won that battle. So that shows that agorism wins overall. Airbnb Absolutely. is having the same things, but it's winning. It's winning. So, so that's the key. The technology is there at a point now, and never mind adding in things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies that the government can't track or tax. Agorism is going to win. Like this is the side. The one of the reasons I'm on this side is because I see that this is the winning side. <laughs> the way the wind blows, man. I'll tell you. Like I think another thing that enables this is you're starting to get there with Bitcoin and all. But we have a state that exists. Mainly for the purpose of self-preservation at this point. That's right. that's their. You've said that. That's their goal. So they look at something like an Uber or they look at something like an Airbnb and they they, they naturally want to control it and shut it down because it, mm-hmm. it disrupts the other guilds they've helped set up. These other controls that they're getting money from, by the way. Mm-hmm. However, then somebody comes up with an app like Cell Four One One. Right. And says, okay, if there's no Ubers in your area, people can just individually use this app that they paid two bucks for and set up their own rides and stuff like that. Well, now you can't freaking control that. It's too decompartmentalized. It's too fractionalized. It's too leaderless. There's no conduit like an Uber or Airbnb to go after. You know, it's like, it's like Bitcoin. How do you shut down Bitcoin? We'll arrest the owners. You don't, there aren't any. Right. Right. We'll shut down their central system. We don't have one. It's everywhere. Right. It's distributed. 
So when Cell 401 starts popping up and other apps like that and people start making their own deals individually, the state says, you know, it would be better to deal with Uber than that. And if we right. if we deal with Uber, then that won't get any traction. But if we force people out of this system now that they know how it works, then we'll end up with this decentralized system that we absolutely have no control over, and that's more scary to them. So then they start capitulating. Well, the thing is, I don't even think that they – I mean, you don't have the most talented individuals in society in the bureaucratic <laughs> positions no. that are even thinking. Like, no. it's not people like you and I because if, if you – if they were actually that forward-thinking, they wouldn't be in the bureaucracy. They'd be entrepreneurs like you and I, right? Sure. Now, now the thing that you're describing, it's, it's interesting because that decentralized Uber slash Airbnb sort of system was supposed to be the promise of a company called Arcade City that has now – They split into two, basically the people who were kind of the, the fun, um, the, the cultural visionaries split and they're Arcade City. But there's a company called Swarm City that was basically that technology that exactly you're describing. A decentralized Uber, a decentralized Airbnb, they just went public. So I, that's a company to it's and it's not even a company. They don't consider themselves a company. It's just the the initial group of developers. But it's called Swarm City, and I would say that it's if it's not that, it's going to be projects like that that will create the exact vision that you just described. So I think it's important for people to understand that we're not talking about future technology here. We or future things that could happen. We're talking about something that's going to happen and that's already here. Like it's already on top of us. And I, that's an important thing. And I think that it should give people a lot of hope. And I hope that it, in, that people get interested to actually start looking into these things because if you've got a lot, especially those people who are currently working for the state, right? Like because I do care about those people and those are the people that I'm actually the most worried about. The people who think that they have quote unquote good jobs in the bureaucracy because the wind is not blowing in that direction and it's not like it's gonna, this is going to be decades away. Things are moving really fast. No, definitely. I like the one group I talk to all the time on my show. Like if you're a public school teacher, you better, you better get your shit straight. If you, if you're going to retire in five years, you're fine. But if you're, if you just entered the profession, you will not retire in your profession. There is no way because there is no need for public schools anymore. It, there, well, you might, you might not be okay if you're retiring in five years. Yeah, like, that's, that's true too. That's true too. You might not because the pension, <laughs> the pension plans are getting socked. No, no, you're right. I don't mean it that way. I mean like you'll keep your job till it's done. Right, right, right. right But right, what right, I'm exactly. saying is like if you're, if you're 25 out of college and you came into public school teaching because you thought you were going to change the world, that's not the place the world's going to change. Right. It, 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 it's at a point now where these systems are beginning to cave in on themselves. And if, you're right, the pension is gone because when you don't have enough new people in the Ponzi, then the Ponzi right. collapses. Let's talk a little bit about your show, right? The Vin Armani Show. What made you decide to do this type of show? I mean, I know from personal experience, you work really long and hard. Podcasting can become a lucrative profession. It takes sure. a lot of work and a lot of time. You, you probably don't directly need the money now or you wouldn't be able to do it. Because uh, it takes time to build something like this up. What what drove you to create your podcast? Well, yeah, I mean, if people Google me, they can they can see sort of what my background is. Like I said, I'm on a I've, I was on a TV show for six seasons. It looks like we probably will not be doing another one, but we haven't been canceled. It's a show on Showtime, so that put quite a bit of uh, of capital in my pocket. I live a pretty simple life. TV money's good, I'm, and it, and I was very lucky to be a part of that. Um, 
But, you know, I also have some other businesses that, that are able to support me. What basically what happened was, you know, this election started, uh, this election was rolling around and I was less about the election itself, this last uh, presidential election, but more about what I was seeing in the culture. Um, you know, I, I, I was already at that point, you know, in the, in the last couple of years, I mean, hardcore anarchist, voluntarist, talk with my friends about these things. But like I said, you know, I was still very in the closet, uh, politically slash ideologically. I was a little bit scared to talk about those things in the public for fear of maybe, uh, influencing my income. Right. But, uh, it got to a point where I said, okay, I've got to do something. And I just started, I've, I've, I already had a pretty good base of, uh, social media followers. And I just started, I, I just said, screw it. And, and started doing some rants just about the things that I was seeing, talking about uh, trying to give a voluntarist perspective, an anarchist perspective, and, and put them on my YouTube, started communicating more in that, that community um, on social media and activist posts. The editors over there reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we're kind of we're thinking about starting this podcast network. You know, you, you're obviously able to do this. You're comfortable, you know, speaking on, on camera or, you know, you're an entertainer and that way. Would you would you be interested in doing a podcast on some of these concepts? And and I said, look, I, I don't really necessarily want to do a podcast because, you know, like yourself, I was like, well, then I, I would, I know me, I'd probably end up doing it five days a week. And I don't really know if I want to put myself in that mode. But I said, but I have this idea for like a multi-camera, like high production value. I, I'd love to experiment technologically and see if maybe we could do like a TV show, like a, a real it, that would look like a TV show. And so uh, my partner, Christian Reyes, and I put a, put together a little package. Activist Post said, OK, let's go with it. And so now we do uh, every Monday at 10 a.m. We do a two hour live show. It's broadcast on on YouTube and on Twitter and Periscope and simultaneously on the Facebook page of Activist Post. And I think we're about only about 20 episodes in, but it's starting to hit its flow. We always have, we have a guest every single week. You've been on the show. Yep. So we have, we have people who are just the thought leaders in the space and I'm having a great time. I mean, regardless of whether this particular project makes money, I really, really do feel like it's, uh, it's worthwhile and it's, it's added a lot to, to my life already. Well, and then you, now you have your podcast as a byproduct, right? You spin the That's audio right. off and off it goes into Stitcher and iTunes and, and that's that's what I've always thought. People that are unless you, what you're doing in video is so specifically necessary that it's video that right. you should produce an audio product off it because it's another twenty minutes, twenty seconds worth of work. Really, the computer might take a while to spit it out. Um, what do you really want to accomplish with this show? If it's it's not really a, it's something that's you know trying to make a profession as financially, you know, if it happens, it happens. You know, that's kind of how it was when I started this thing. Um, but what do you want to like? What's your your main goal? Like like for instance, you said the election kind of had you thinking this way. I started the show in 2008. I knew the stock market was about to crash. Right. And I looked. I had. I had like, I had like 60 employees at the time, and we had like thousands of contractors in our contracting business. And 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 I and I looked at all these people. And I'm like, millions of people are going to get hurt by this. That was a big part of it. I talked a lot about it in the beginning. That kind of drove me. And what I wanted to do was help people put their lives together in a way that made them resilient. That was like my driving focus. What's kind of yours with this? Well, I'm I. I you know, I would love to see this this particular project be self-sufficient, of course, because that'll enable it to keep going. My, my history, though, as an entrepreneur has been that um, never have I put together – and I've had 
quite a few successful businesses, even even some that I've sold to publicly traded companies, uh, particularly on the technology side. But one of the things that I've always learned, and, and one saying that I always have is, is you can't be broke with a pocket full of diamonds. And that's just to say, <laughs> I've never created something of value that hasn't delivered back to me in um, compensation. And, and I mean financial compensation, you know, never mind the emotional and spiritual, but in financial compensation, it's always delivered back to me multitudes more than, than the value that I, I feel it was. But uh, what, I, what I would hope to accomplish with this outside of any sort of financial, outside of, you know, this thing bringing in money is I get so much satisfaction from, one, being able to sit and talk to those people whose thinking I respect and to be able to do that in sort of an environment that structured that I can pull so much out of it. And I mean, every single person that I've talked to, I've gotten so much out of it. You know, at the conversation that you and I had every single time, Christian and I, we end the interview and we're like, wow, mind blown. You know what I mean? So that in and of itself, totally selfish. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to have comments from people thanking me for sharing you know, for reaching out and, and sharing new information with them. And, I, and, and as an entrepreneur, as an agorist, I want a world where the agora is bigger. I want a world where more people are participating in this, in this way just because it's a better world for me. So if anything, it's just to, to continue sharing the thoughts of those people who, who I feel are, are making a difference in the world and can move the consciousness forward. Absolutely, man. Um, Can can you talk a little bit about the way you're doing the show? The, the, let's call it the first half of your show. Sure. What I see you doing is something I think is very valuable. I do it here a lot, but nowhere near as much as I did in the beginning. I did the show for the first 18 months in my car. Um, <laughs> so there was no guests or anything like that. Uh, it was me alone. So I had to have a lot of media material to be able to do that. Um, but I think it's so important what you're doing, and it's a deconstruction. So the media puts out... A, a story, right? And that's a good word for it, a story, right, a right? Story. Like your kid that's telling you the story about how the window really got broke, right? And you have to deconstruct what actually went on. Can you talk about how you're doing that? And what's impressed me with your show, dude, is how deep dive you're making. Like you're taking the time to really be informed about this. Like is it, does that something that really comes from, like you were saying earlier, your programming background and, 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 and what – What should a person that listens to you expect when they're when they're you know hearing about stuff like this? Well, yeah. Look, I mean, I'm a nerd, and I think that uh, you know you get better at anything with practice. And having been a software developer so long, digging into and pulling apart really, really complex and dense things, you just start to get kind of good at it. I don't. It's 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 an art form. I don't know. It's it's something that you get, but you practice it, you get good at it. Like you know. If you're at doing permaculture for a long time, you can come take a glance at a permaculture system, right? And you can see without looking too much further, like, okay, this is lacking. There's an issue here. You know what I mean? It's just your, your, your vision is there. But for, for me, we're very blessed because our partners in this is activistpost.com who already have a long, I think they've been going for 10 years now and You know, they're one of the top alternative media sites. They were on the top of the list when all those fake news lists came yeah. out and whatnot. But they do really fantastic work. And so 
you know, weekly we have editorial meetings with them where we decide, okay, here's these big stories. What do these things mean? You know, myself and Christian and their editors, we go back and forth and we, we talk about these things. And that's, that's really a blessing. I think it's a resource that very few people have and I'm glad that we have it. I couldn't do this all myself. So, you know, what people can, what people can expect is, is, I guess, you know, the other thing about, the other thing about it is my background, the TV show that I'm on is a reality TV show. And being on it that long, you start to learn how narratives are constructed. A lot of people don't know this, but most of the producers in reality TV come from broadcast news. <laughs> and reality TV is really an editor's art. So what they do is they take, they film reality and then they basically edit a narrative and they can almost edit any narrative they want. And they string a narrative through. So when people ask, is reality TV scripted? It's not. It's edited. And so what I've been – and now I've gone on to produce reality TV as well. Obviously, I've started. I've, I have I helped to write the storylines on our show. You know, Now it's a collaborative process with the producers and editors and ourselves. But so I'm able to see – like these, just like, you know, the permaculturist who looks at the permaculture thing and says, oh, I'm able to see where those stitches are, mm. where, where that narrative's being constructed. And it's in those places of the stitches. We basically unravel the stitches and then we look and we connect what's been edited out. So that's basically what you're going to see. We want to give you a full narrative so that you have a re, the real story as it really is to look at, not just this, this, bite-sized, edited-down narrative that may serve the interests of somebody, but definitely serves the interests of the the uh, advertisers by hyping certain things and downplaying others. Sure. I mean, like one of the more famous things that's recently happened, I think it was Katie Couric that got busted, right, with mm -hmm. the thing where she asked the guys a question on gun control, and they had all these, 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 these advocates for the Second Amendment sitting there, and there was like this long, dramatic pause and like a deep breath here and a deep breath there, like they right. had no answer for for it and then it turned out that that was like earlier footage edited in and they said it was for dramatic effect well yeah it was for dramatic effect to lie because every single person immediately had an answer and yes. I, i think see what you're talking about here is what we call that, that, that by the way that by the way is a is a time tested reality tv show Uh, editing technique. And as a matter of fact, listeners can go and if, if you don't think that this is really how, really what's happening both on the news and in your favorite reality TV show, I would advise people to go and Google a term called frankenbiting. And frank this is, you will see it, frankenbiting. It's a mix between soundbite and Frankenstein. And actually what, and I've seen it happen to myself on the show that I'm on where I will say things on the show, whole sentences that I never said. <laughs> in the context of the conversation because they will go they will go and literally I have seen them take word a, a word from season one a word from season two a word from season four and put them together to be a sentence in season six as a matter of fact the editors love to do this there's one funny story where they uh, the show that I'm on is called Gigolos and one of the the head editor showed me one time he came on set and he was like look dude you're gonna love this and it was he it was titled the Jiggiesburg address and it was myself and my co-star sitting in our little talking head thing they had edited it together that we actually said the Gettysburg address oh man four score and seven years ago so that's what where I'm saying that you know to look at broadcast news or to it's it's reality tv to look at it as though the narrative that's happening is anything close to what actually happened 
you're really you're fooling yourself and you're basically being put into the matrix. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to pop you. We're trying to red pill you and pop you out of the matrix. Definitely. What you're, what you're teaching is what we call pattern recognition. Right. So once you once you see the pattern, you know, yes. you can't not see the pattern anymore. And that's you. You realize when you've awakened somebody, when they start coming to you and go, hey, they said this and this is what they, they've got it. Right. And, and they immediately recognize it. And I think that that is like one of the most important skills that we can teach people in the, the Illuminatus trilogy. Right. I see the Fenords. Right. And that's that's what you're trying to teach people is to see those those misinformation pieces. And I can tell you, you're dead on. And you have way more knowledge than I do of Inside Reality TV. But. My experience completely bears this out. I was approached heavily by the producers from Doomsday Preppers when that stupid show came out. Sure, I'm sure. And, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not having anything to do with you people. And a, a colleague set up a dinner one night at a convention we were doing, and the, the head producer, executive producer of Doomsday Preppers was invited. Like he was doing me a favor. Like I, I didn't want anything to do with this guy. And I'm talking to him, and I said, listen. I said, what's important to me is integrity. Right. Mm -hmm. My brand is integrity. And the man looks me straight in the face and says, I work for network television. I can't afford to have integrity. There you go. Oh, they're honest. Well, we're not going to talk anymore. Right. I mean, we're not going to do anything together ever. Yeah, that's I mean, they're they're honest about it. There's no, um, you know, when you I'm sleaze and I know I'm sleaze. They, they'll let you know. Yeah. Well, that was almost like like showing you that Gettysburg address thing is almost like saying, hey, dude, you know what? We can make you do whatever we want. It's it's yes, a taunt, you know. True. It's a well, taunt. well, you know, and and I I knew that going in very early, and I think among all of my co-stars, you know, I was always sure. I, I knew and understood like these producers and these editors can make me look however they want. So I am, I'll take my paycheck and I'll be incredibly nice. Like yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean. And and they and they never did me dirty. Yeah. They never did me dirty. And but it is just to say that 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 yeah. They're playing to the people who are their buddies. They're playing to the people that – so so when you see you know, something that's being put on from a political standpoint and, and the music that's in the background and the particular shots that they pick, all of those things, that is an editor's political bias. Sure. That's not the truth. And so – but we have enough out there. Right. And that's what I'm hoping to, to share with people with our show is that there's enough out there. You can go to the actual source documents. You can go and watch the actual feed of somebody speaking. You can go and read about the actual history of things. We've got all of this in our pocket and we are really just we're agreeing to our own enslavement if we don't pull that phone out of the pocket. And instead of going on Facebook and instead of going on Instagram, we Google something that we don't know the answer to. And we find the answer for ourselves. Definitely. Stop living in the world of fallacies. I think that's, that's, because what people do is they have a perception bias and instead of looking for something that challenges it to see if they can w maintain it, they look for something that confirms it and they go into the world of the con confirmation bias. It must be true because I can find, you know, enough other people that agree that it's true that it must be true. Well, that just means that the narrative has been repeated. Um, you've kind of mentioned, you know, your show is called Gigolos, your male escort, right? I think that's your. That's right. Career. That is right. Right. So, how does that career, it's a unique career, right? How does that affect your view politically? 
Uh, you know, I actually think that my political view is the reason, like my political view is the reason why I decided that this might be something that I would want to do in the first place. So uh, that's been a, it's been a part of my life as a, as, which is one of the weirdest things is a straight male escort is probably one of the most niche uh, markets. Yeah. I didn't even know it existed until I was introduced <laughs> by a female friend of mine to the guy who's now my agent. And I was a software developer at the time. But when he was like, hey, would you like to get paid for women to take you out on dates? Uh, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll definitely do that. That sounds really, really great to me. Um, but, you know, I was, all, like I say, I, I was already kind of counterculture, anti-authoritarian. I looked at it and I, you know, I took a look and I said, okay, is this, is this, do I have a moral problem with this? And I looked at what it is and I said, okay, it's two adults making a voluntary exchange. Everything is upfront in terms of, you know, I'm paid for my time and companionship. The client knows that there's no beyond that. There's no contract of what has to happen or not happen either Physically, emotionally, I just got to technically I could just show up, take my money and sit there for two hours, you know, and and I would be within the bounds of what our contract is now. So for me, I said, OK, morally, I do not have a problem with this because this is a completely this falls in completely with the voluntarist, you know, and then but then from there, I'm also. I'm also, I, I believe that sexual liberation and us understanding ourselves and us really taking hard looks, I think that's the next place. And I know it's kind of a taboo place. Uh, I wrote a book called Dow of the Gigolo. You can get it on, on Amazon after a couple years of, of being involved in this industry and then being on the show. When I was first on the show, this was really derided what we do. Now it's in 20 international markets. You know, all, I get stopped on the street all over the world and it's nothing but positive. People are like, oh, my God, it's awesome what you do and all of this. And I think it, it goes to the, the point that so many things that we look at at any given time. I mean, weed is a prime example, right? In 20 years, there's no, there is no not even going to be a thought that marijuana is anything worse than alcohol or cigarettes, you know, but and with alcohol, we have to remember there was a time when prohibition was a big deal. And so I think that. As we move forward, as we get into a more free market, a lot of these things that we think are some moral imperative about why we think X is good and X is bad, we'll realize, yeah, actually that came from the state, yeah. you know, because a lot, a lot of it came from the church and the church used to be the state. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, how much of this is what you really believe in your heart and associated with your own sense of morals and ethics and how much of this is somebody else's bullshit. And so when you start to get rid of the BS, the state's BS, a lot of this stuff, you start being a little more comfortable with it. And so, you know, in, in that way, it's provocative and it's, it's something that I, I enjoy having done. It was a great experience. It's something that is still a part of my life. Um, and it's rewarded me spiritually in immensely and, you know, maybe I'm a little bit ahead of the curve. Maybe this is the part of my life that people are uh, are still a little squeamish about. And that's totally OK, because you know what? We've got a long way to go. This consciousness, our consciousness is evolving and everybody's going to evolve at their own pace. Well, and I kind of look at it like this. There's a lot of things that people do that I don't think they should do. Sure. But that doesn't mean that I need to do anything to prevent them from doing it. 
You know, exactly. if, if you're hurting people or stealing from people or beating people up or burning down houses, yeah, then we have a problem. You violated the non-aggression principle. Until you do that, I might not agree with somebody's lifestyle choices, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop them. Uh, marijuana is a classic example. I actually have no problem whatsoever with it. Um, it's still illegal in my state, you know, but... If I did, if I thought like, you know, you, like if I was Jeff Sessions, good people don't use marijuana, right? If I were Jeff Sessions, that doesn't, okay, fine. If you really believe that it, like only bad people use marijuana, that doesn't mean that you need to do jack shit about it. That's right. It, because, you know, drugs lead to stealing TVs. Well, that is, a, that's a problem. When somebody steals a TV, then we can do something about that. But I know people all over the place, the only thing they do after they smoke marijuana is watch their own TV, right? That's so, right. And eat a Twinkie and, and don't bother anybody. You know, what's bad for you? Well, Twinkies are bad for you, right? Hot dogs are bad for you. We don't That's have right. a law that says you can't have that. And then I mean, look, if we get into the world the of sex. That, that believe eating meat is bad. Look well, at all the people that yeah. believe eating meat it makes you a bad person. Yeah. So, you know? I mean, when we get into the world of sex, government's completely inconsistent. Two people decide sure. they want to have sex. One wants to pay for it. So one pays for it. Now it's a crime. Two people decide to have sex in front of a camera and both get paid, and that's legal. The The... the Asininity of a, a legal system that actually thinks that's proper is is just if you wanted to make a case against the state that that should be able to do it alone. Well, let me give you let me give you this one. We don't even need to get into porn. Uh, a guy wants to have sex with a woman, so he buys a twenty thousand dollar ring because <laughs> she won't have sex with him until they're married. Let's get, come on. <laughs> Let's be real. Yeah. Yeah, and the state sanctions that one. The state yeah. goes ahead and and the state does the ceremony for that one. Yeah, and then he gets laid on the on the honeymoon night. I mean, come on, man. And there's all different shades there. of gray between one extreme and the other. There, I mean, there's there you go. plenty of it. And I mean, so just on a side note, there, like I think one thing everybody out there should do, you should go do it. You should become a minister online, right? Yes, just do it. It takes like five seconds, and you do it. And there's like a, a complete anti-state reason to do this. Let's say you and I were talking about something that you were confiding in me and that someday I could be asked about it. And, you know, the state will do nasty things like, Mr. Spirico, you can't plead the fifth on stand because right. we're just going to grant you blanket immunity and all things. So now, you know, you're committing perjury. And you, Well, I'm sorry. I was acting as Mr. Armani's minister during that time. And everything that I was told about this, I can't confirm anything. But all I can tell you is any discussions we had were confidential as his minister. Right. Bye. That's great. <laughs> Bye. That's great. You know, Universal I mean, Life Church. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I actually officiated my son's marriage to my daughter-in-law. Uh, that was, you know, one way of putting the state as far away from it as possible anyway. You know? In the end, I had to sign off on their license for the state, but at least it was me and not somebody beholden to the state. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of media? You know, I mean, I think what you and I are doing is the future of media. I think old media is in, like, the, one of the reasons they're flipping out And, and, like, I think part of, like, why I think this is, like, the end of the road for them is well, you look at the fake news shit, right? So they come out with the fake news thing. There's I've never seen anything thrown back in the media space so fast in my life. And I'm not just talking about Trump's one golden moment uh, with right. the CNN at the press conference. I'm talking about tens of thousands of hashtag fake news for CNN, NBC, Fox News, etc. Just storming, like, that narrative was ruined in weeks by Agreed. backlash. Agreed. 
I mean, I, look, it's, if, if you want to, I just, I believe history repeats itself. I believe that we, we move in essentially the same fundamental patterns over time. If you want to know what's going to happen to the media, all you have to look at is what's happened with, you can start with publishing, like you can go back to the book and the printing press, right? And you look at the control that the Catholic Church had on messaging, right? You, you go, you can go all the way back that far and see that, you know, take Germany, you know, in the time of, of Martin Luther, most Germans were Catholics. They went to Catholic Church, but the mass was all in Latin. Most Germans couldn't even understand the words that were coming out of the priest's mouth. And that was one of the big reasons why there is Protestantism, why there, why there was the Reformation, why Martin Luther, Martin Luther was the first person to publish the Bible in German. And when those printing presses went out, man, talk about taking the power out of the, the Catholic Church. Hey, we don't need you speaking to us in Latin anymore. And I think that it, that's gone, that's happened with music, right? That's happened with, uh, with video like movies and whatnot. And I think that to say that it's not going to happen with the media when what we have happening right now is the essentially it's the next printing press. It's the point where the ability to spread information on a, on a professional level that's on par with anything that these old established churches, because the mainstream media really is a church. It mm. really is. And those are the ministers and those are the bishops and the cardinals of it. And they may fight amongst each other, but you know what? They all go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner and they laugh together, don't they? Oh, yeah. Right? They may be fighting for, for ratings, but when you have the ability, when it's become so cheap, you know, and our printing press is – our printing press is YouTube and our printing press is cheap – uh, is computers that that you know that we can record cheaply, and it's broadband, and it's all of those things that make us able to do what they can do. And then, never mind, it's the smartphone that uh, that allows the listener anywhere or the viewer anywhere to view us as easily as they can view CNN. And that's that's the revolution. So, if you want to know what's about to happen to the media, all you got to do is look at what happened to the Catholic Church when the printing press was in the hands of everybody. Yeah, definitely. I think like another thing that we have as an advantage is if you're CNN and you're running uh, a segment every day that's getting 150,000 people looking at it, you're a failure. You're a miserable that's right. failure. That's right. I run my whole life off a show that gets 150,000 listens a day. It is a, an incredible success for a small entrepreneur to be able to do that, and you can monetize it, and you can do well mm -hmm. for yourself. Well, there can be... 10,000 Jack Spiracles and then Armani's. There's plenty That's of right. room for it. Because we right. all need... I mean, I was doing okay with this show when I had built it up to about 50,000 people. Really right. good, right? So, like, if you just start take the population of the world and divide it by 50,000, and then some people have overlap. They like your show and my show or my show and somebody else's thing or whatever it is. And sure. there's this is what you would call like the long tail. So in search engine marketing, the long tail is there's all these terms that advertisers can't banter around with because it's just like 10 people a month searching for it but if you build a uh, information rich site that long tail can become cumulatively the bulk of your traffic well this is like a long tail in reverse where there's so many niches to go down there's so many opportunities they can't keep up they can't make a show like mine they can't because it's no. 
They can't make yours because it would basically be everything we've told you is a lie, right? <laughs> the reason they can't make mine is they can't afford to fool around with these this many diverse niche topics. They they can't do it. They and they have to right. fit into constraints. Like they have to their show their show has to be forty three minutes with time for commercials. And I don't give a shit if my show runs two hours one day and an hour and a half the next. I don't care. And, and it's that flexibility. And then like you were talking about like YouTube and all that. You know, my editing software has features that back in the eighties. One of the one piece of equipment to do that one feature was a hundred thousand dollars, and, oh, and the whole software I, I mean, package yes. is eight hundred bucks. Right now, my show that that we do, even ten years ago, it would have been close to a million dollars worth of equipment mm. to do it at the quality that we do it at, and to be able to edit it live in the way that we do. It would have been close to a million dollars worth of equipment, and it's. I, I think we get away with probably about five five grand to fifty five hundred, and I mean, and that's a splurging. Yeah. So yeah. you know that's uh, that's a, a huge a huge dip, and they they simply can't compete. They've got so much overhead. They've got people working in their organizations where you're like, you do what now? You're the assistant <laughs> yeah. develop assistant to the assistant of the executive vice president of you know this and that, and it's just like, man, you can't. <laughs> the assistant of the assistant vice president's assistant. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I know I, I was on the Glenn Beck show at one time, and they really vet the shit out of you before they let you on there as a, as a guest. So I had like five different interviews with different staff members before I got on the show. You know, my vetting is you fill out a form and you don't sound like an idiot. I send you to my wife and she books you. But what what got me the most during that vetting process was two of the different people that were doing their vetting at some point during the interview with me stopped and just said. How do you possibly do what you do with no staff? They could not get their freaking head around a guy producing an hour to two hour audio show a day. And you talk well, about that's why I say it's a church. Yeah, that's why I say it's a, it's a religion to them because it's an ideology. They can't imagine have to have a director of programming. Exactly. You know, you know right? but exactly. you talk about cost. So when I started this show. I shit you not, I started it with a $35 um, Sony MP3 recorder and a $19 Plantronics headset and a $10 a month hosting account. There you go. And we grew the show to like first six months, like 2,000 listeners. But by the time we were two and a half years in, I walked away. For, I sold all my interest in my other business. And a year later, my wife quit her job. And, yeah. and I mean, that's like what used to be the American story was, you know, a guy came to town with the clothes on his back and five bucks. And you talk about repeating, like they regulated that success story out of America. Mm -hmm. And this is basically the new picks and shovels for the, the gold rush, and it's being written back in. And, and I think that the genie's out of the bottle this time. Like you can't, you can't put this, but they can, you know, there's all this, the, the government will shut down the internet someday. Yeah, 500,000 college students will burn the White House to the ground in five minutes. Right. That's not, no, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. You can't no, it's do it. It's, it's impossible. Well, they need it. They need it. They can't shut it down. They need no. it. All their shit runs on it, too. Yeah. <laughs> they need it just as much as we do. So, man, this has been a great interview, dude. Can you tell people, uh, your website where they can, like, you know, find out about your stuff and, and, and get all your streaming stuff and all that? Absolutely. You can go to VinArmani.com and uh, you can watch the show. You can uh, link over. I'm pretty much Vin Armani on every single piece of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and also uh, ActivistPost.com 
you can go, and I believe it's activistpost.com slash podcast. Uh, I'm just one of several in the podcast network. All really, really good stuff. Um, and you can, of course, check out, check out their articles there as well. But yeah, I would, I would hope people would, would, if they're interested in more agorism, again, it's a Samuel Edward Konkin. His books are New Libertarian Manifesto and An Agorist Primer. Definitely worth a read, even if you just get one. They're very short and very powerful books and something to, to add to your mental arsenal. Great, man. And like when you mention those, I've already got them. They're already in the show notes. I've got your book in the show notes. We've got links to activist posts in your website in the show notes as well. Sweet. So you get by the site, episode uh, 1967, if you're listening you know, weeks from now in the future or years from now in the future and you want to catch back up on all this and see where it's gone, just just pull the episode up on the survivalpodcast.com, click the links. And again, Ben, man, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, definitely we'll have you back on in the future. I'll do what I can to, to kind of help you get this thing off the ground because I think what you're doing is awesome. Oh, thank you, brother. And I got to have you back on uh, on our show as well soon. Yeah, just send me an invite. I'm I'm always willing to come on your show, man. You do a great job. Sounds, sounds great, brother. Thank you so much. Well, a great interview with a great guy, and I really mean it. You guys should get by and uh, subscribe to this podcast when you're trying to get something like this off the ground. As I've said before, it's difficult. And I see a lot of guys like Vin that come out of some level of mainstream media and they start up a podcast and they think that, you know, the world will beat a path to the door. And they, they, they quickly learn that it's hard work and a lot of them wash out. Vin just continues to get better. Um, if you're not into his guests, I would say the first hour of his show alone is worth subscribing for just because of that in-depth analysis of current events, something we do less and less of here as I focus more and more on solutions, and we all have roles to play in the quest for liberty, and, and Vin's definitely a warrior for liberty. So again, I appreciate that he was on the show with us today. I'd like to remind you, if you like what I do here and you want us to always be here, you can help support us in a variety of ways. But one is simply, when you're shopping, uh, going to do some shopping on Amazon, go to my site first and take a look at the stuff that we review. Just go to tspaz.com and take a look at the items we review, and you can click on through and see the deals of the day and stuff like that. And if you do that, anything you buy on Amazon goes down as a sell for us as an affiliate. And I got a lot of stuff for review up, and I continue to add new stuff all the time in the item of the day posts. And uh, I've got one for you today that belongs in your preps. It belongs in your preps. Not It'd be a good thing to have. This belongs in your preps. Um, it's J.B. Weld which a lot of people would know what that is. It's an epoxy. It comes in a putty. You mix it up. But specifically, J.B. Weld Water Weld. This stuff will, will bond underwater. It will certainly bond to things that are wet. Now, why water weld then? You know? Well, see, here's the thing about water weld. It works when it's dry, too. So why the hell would you have dry J.B. Weld and wet J.B. Weld? They work the same, except J.B. Weld works when it's wet. I mean, the water weld works when it's wet. And they don't cost that much different. So I just keep a few tubes of this stuff around all the time. It'll do a lot of things for you. What I most recently did with it, I have my aquatic system where I have two stainless steel tanks plumbed together with a three-quarter inch return line. Water's pumped from the lower tank to the upper tank. Actually, it goes through other tanks now, but initially up to the upper tank and then flows back through the three-quarter underground. Those were plumbed at the bottom of the tanks. The tanks are buried under dirt, one under about 16, 18 inches, the other one under about two feet. And they're down there, and, and there was a problem. That line wasn't big enough, so the water wasn't returning fast enough, so it was causing all types of problems. And I wasn't able to run the system fast enough to keep water circulating at the rate that I really wanted it to. So we plumbed in two-inch bulkheads to the upper tanks, 
and plumbed a two-inch return line in. Some of you have seen the video. Well, that left this three-quarter-inch line down there. Now, to fix that, what I really needed to do was dig way down in the dirt and, and plug it. And this would have drained the tanks a great deal, filled the trench. Best way to do it would have been completely to drain the tank, what have you. But if I left it there with just a stand-up on it, if that stand-up ever failed, the top tank would just drain to the bottom, overflow the lower tank, and, and all the fish would die. That was a real risk. So what I did is I just mixed up some JB Waterwell and made a plug and a disc. And I pulled the standoff off, water started running out of it, I shoved it into the pipe and basically plugged the hole in the pipe. And then I covered the, the outside of that lower bulkhead underwater with a disc, like a disc made of it, a flat round disc, and I held it there. And this is the key. When you're using this stuff on a wet environment, it takes about 20 to 30 minutes to set fully, but it takes about 7 to 10 minutes to set begin to cure. So you can keep your hands down in that water, hold it with pressure for about 5, 7, 10 minutes, and then it'll bond really well for you. And mine did. I did that a month ago. Haven't had hadn't had any problems with that tank training. None. If I hadn't used JB Waterweld, I would have had six hours minimum of work to do to get the done right. We just left the pipe in the ground. No problem now. None. Nothing to worry about. Problem solved in about 10 minutes because of a $5 tube of JB Weld. All right, so if you're going to buy this stuff on Amazon, there's a couple different choices you have. One is you can get a single tube for $4.55, but it's what they call an add-on item. That basically means your total order has to be $25 to order that add-on item. And the reason they do that is because it's $4.55 product. One order for that just doesn't work with Prime Free Shipping and all that other stuff. And it just isn't worth them selling it. Uh, you can also buy three tubes for $17.79, and that's not a bad thing because more than one is good. You get free shipping, but that comes out to $5.93 a tube, which is a little more than a dollar plus over the individual add-on item price. I found the best deal, right now anyway. Uh, it's six-pack for $23.99. That's $4 a tube with free shipping. Um, when you click the link to see that one in my article, you won't see any way to buy it. It'll say, click to see all buying options. The first person listed, vendor listed, will be American Falcon Warehouse Deals. And they offer the price, again, $23.99 with free shipping. This stuff belongs in your preps. If you pick up six of them, you put a couple in your shop, you put one in each of your vehicle repair kits, and, I mean, you've got, this, this is stuff you can fix a leaking pipe, a leaking uh, gas tank. It, once it cures, you can sand it, you can paint it. Uh, since it's a putty, you can form it around problems. Uh, I have some other things that I'm going to be fixing with some of this stuff very, very soon. I'll show you in my videos. But I, I really recommend, I know I'm a little long on today's item of the day, but it's so cheap and it does so much and it's pretty much infinitely storable. If you keep the tube closed and you don't mix it, it'll work fine. Now you'll see negative reviews on Amazon. Why? People don't do what I said. Number one, if you're using it with water, you have to apply pressure to it for seven to ten minutes before you let go of it. Or it will fail. Number two, you have to mix it till it smells like piss. Yep, stale piss in a toilet. That's Until it smells like that, it's not been fully mixed. It has to be one color. Next, if there's any kind of oil or grease, you got to get it off of the, the, the item you're sticking it to. And if it's a really slick item, it wouldn't hurt to rough it up with some sandpaper, though I haven't seen that it's definitely necessary. I've put it straight on a PVC pipe and had to hold just fine. But if you'll do those things, it will work really great for you. Anyway... With that, let's talk about today's song of the day. Um, we're in the middle of, you know, the, the great protest movement 
of the of the Vietnam War, um, and uh, it, it's going to get worse before it gets better. But things are really starting to pick up, as we talked about in the history segment today, with people burning draft cards and things like that. This song typifies 1967 like no other song out there. And I don't even really think it's that good of a song. In fact, at Song Facts, I did some research on this, and Billy Joel was at Woodstock when this song was played, and he, he, he said he didn't like it. It had nothing to do with the lyrics. He just thought it was a bad song. It wasn't very good. Um, but it's called Feels Like I'm Fixing to Die by country Joe McDonald in the Fish. And when you hear it, you'll be like, yeah, I've heard that song before. Or most of you, anyway. Anybody over 40, definitely. One, two, three, four. What the hell are we fighting for? I don't give a damn. My next stop is Vietnam. Feels like I'm fixing to die. And, you know, five, six, seven, eight, open up the pearly gates. Um, this song is using something that if you weren't ever in the military, it might you might not get it. This is a dark, sadistic humor that you would call GI humor, army humor, soldier humor. When you're facing situations that suck, that are miserable, that you will risk your life and you don't really understand, you can't tell the people in charge of you, you guys suck, this sucks, everything sucks, I don't want to do it, F off. You can't do that. You'll, you know, Military justice is swift and, and efficient. And uh, you know there was the old line about, what are you going to do, send me to Vietnam? You're already in Vietnam. There's a lot of shit you can have to do in Vietnam that you otherwise might not have to do. They can make your life more miserable. So it's kind of accepted that soldiers will say things like this in a sarcastic way, and it helps them deal with it. And command tends, depending on where and when and how, but kind of amongst yourselves and not in direct defiance of something, command tends to just look the other way, knowing this is how soldiers deal with insane situations and try to stay sane in them. And you're asking people to kill, they're going to talk like killers. You ask people to die, they're going to talk about dying. And that's what this song's all about. But yet it captures the mind of the people of the time. Uh, the, it becomes a very popular song, especially after it's played at Woodstock. And it also brings out the fact that the government and the corporatocracy is profiting from this war at the expense of the draftee. And I think, I think what people miss today when they look back at the protests of the Vietnam War compared to, let's say, when we look at people that are anti-war about the wars in the Middle East today. The difference is 19-year-old kids aren't getting a letter in the mail saying you're going to war whether you want to or not. That's what was going on back then. And it was acceptable. It was accepted as standard practice. We did it in World War One, World War Two. We did it in other wars. We did it in the Civil War. Uh, and there was, a, there was always resistance to it, but it was acceptable. By the end of the Vietnam War, the concept of the draft in America will no longer be acceptable to the American people. And funny enough, it'll stop being acceptable to the military as well. They'll want an all-volunteer army, and we'll get to that in future episodes. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if well, they don't. come on, all of you big, strong men. Uncle Sam needs your help again. Got himself in a terrible jam. Way down yonder in Vietnam. Put down your books and pick up a gun. We're going to have a whole lot of fun. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. 
Come on, Wall Street, don't be slow. I'm man that swore a go-go. There's plenty good money to be made. Supply in the army with the tools of the trade. Just hope and pray that if they drop the bomb, they're dropping on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Open up the pearly gates. Well, ain't no time to wonder why we're all gonna die. Now come on, generals, let's move fast. Your big chance is here at last. Now you can go out and get those reds, cause the only good commie is one that's dead. And you know that peace can only be one when you're blowing them all the kingdom come. Sing it! One, two, three. What are we fighting for? Stop the war if you can't sing any better than that. There's about 300,000 of you fuckers out there. I want you to start singing. Come on. And it's one, two, three. What are we fighting for? Don't ask me, I don't give a damn. The next stop is Vietnam. And it's five, six, seven. Thank you.